This is It's All Relative. I'm Kaylee, and this episode is the third and final in a series about Gerald and Alice Uden. If you are starting on this episode, you are wrong. At least go back a couple weeks and start with Uden episode number one. Listener discretion is advised to anyone who listens to this podcast. This is a true crime podcast, so things are not all kittens and puppies. Like, ever. Here's the clash to set the mood, and I will see you on the other side. When last we met our villains, Gerald had told investigators that he could withstand any torture and would never confess his felonies to them. And Alice had tried the sweet little old lady routine, detailing her life. I mean, she gave details, like unnecessary details, but she conveniently left Ronnie Holtz out of her tale. Ron Holtz being the husband who disappeared into thin air. Alice did not incriminate herself or Gerald, however... Before she left the sheriff's office, she told Wyoming DCI agents, Waxmuth and Tabeast, that she'd be glad to supply all the paperwork she had kept from the time of Virginia's disappearance. Alice brought said paperwork to the DCI agents, and that's when they pounced. Quote, Tabeast, sitting beside Alice, dispensed with pleasantries. Alice, you left out a few things yesterday, he said. You didn't tell us the truth. Alice looked startled, hurt. I did, she said. We know you didn't. I did, she repeated. Tabeast leaned so uncomfortably close to her, he could smell her. Ron Holtz. Alice recoiled, as if he'd hit her with a hammer. She pulled her purse close, but her shield had failed her. Waxmuth, sitting across the table, watched her eyes glaze over. Her face showed real fear. Suddenly, Alice keeled to her left, literally falling out of her chair. She thunked against the wall behind her, catching herself with her left arm and hitting the floor with her left knee. Bracing herself, she clambered clumsily back into her chair and stammered, not knowing what to say next. In hundreds of interviews, Waxmuth had never seen anything like it. End quote. When Alice regained composure, Tabeast listed off all the dates and locations involved in her relationship with Holtz, saying that it was strange she left all that out of her very detailed recounting of her life. Alice said that she was embarrassed by her time with Holtz, and she didn't like to think about it, so she had honestly forgotten to mention him. Tabeast tells her she's lying, and if she was going to lie, she might as well just stop talking. So she did. And the interview was over. But Tabeast and Waxmuth are initially heartened. Both reactions from Gerald and Alice are very suggestive of wrongdoing. Alice is fainting at the sound of Ron Holtz's name, and Gerald saying he would only confess to St. Peter. Unfortunately, the Wyoming agents find that the whole trip was mostly a waste. One of the Missouri deputies had forgotten to turn on the recorder, 
there was no record of the conversations with Gerald and Alice at all. And in Wyoming, due to a recent decision by a judge who was salty about some interviews having not been recorded, this meant the DCI agents were back to where they started. No tapes, no trial. Tabeast and Waxmouth were set back yet again. Amy Bechtel went missing in 1997. Tabeast was one of the detectives looking for her. Her case made national news. Amy's disappearance was as equally frustrating as the Uden case. Looking for any help at all, the Bechtel case was presented to the Vidoc Society for examination. The Vidoc Society is a group of specialists in the field of crime solving who meet once a month to discuss unsolved cases. Instead of a book club, it's kind of a true crime case club. However, there are some very big names in this society. After their monthly meeting discussing Amy Bechtel, Tabeast was converted to their methodology. He and Waxmouth took the Uden case to the society as well gaining the specific interest of Richard Walter, a renowned forensic psychologist. What they came up with helped the DCI agents develop an argument to take to the county attorney and to get permission to dig. There were two places now where the DCI agents wanted to excavate, the pig pen at the Uden's former Wyoming farm and the mine shaft at the Remount Ranch. We know why investigators wanted to look at the mine shaft. Alice's confessions to three of her children all included her dumping Ron Holtz's body in a shaft on that ranch. But what's going on with the pigsty? Well, along with the long-known fact that pigs eat just about anything, making them a good way to dispose of a body, there was also a time when Alice's youngest, Erica, made a comment to Gerald about how she would love to kill her soon-to-be ex-husband. Gerald's response was that she needed pigs to get rid of the body. Now, in my circle of friends, this is something that we would say as a joke, and no one would think twice. Apparently, in Gerald's case, Erica was convinced he was serious. Investigators also thought this was suspicious. The argument presented to the county attorney was convincing, and the agents were given the go-ahead. The agents got five abandoned mine experts to look at the mine shaft, and a forensic archaeologist to look at and excavate the pigsty. Cadaver dogs hit on several places in the pig pen, but excavation revealed nothing. They didn't, as far as I can tell, take soil samples of the spots the dogs signaled that. I would have been really interested to know what, potentially microscopic, reason the dogs found human decay in those spots in the pig pen, but put a pin in that. Then it was time for the abandoned mine excavation. Enterprise would take much more time and had the potential for serious danger. When they started the dig, the crime lab chief was in charge. Dr. Weatherman, the forensic archaeologist, was there, along with some of his students. There was also a spelunker who, after they had dug through snow and decomposing animals, had said they should stop, because the walls looked as if they would collapse and the county had not approved more money, money they needed to shore up the walls. They all packed up and went home, and Tabeast was pissed off. For the next several years, the higher-ups gave Tabeast a very hard time due to his attitude of wanting to actually solve a cold case. They hint at a suspension or firing, but ultimately decide against it because of the scandal it would make. Then, in 2012, a new director takes over the DCI, Steve Woodson, and Woodson is completely for solving the case. Woodson even applies for money from Wyoming's Department of Homeland Security to fund the dig. 
Tabiste also gained a team member in the form of Agent Tina Trimble, one of the few women who had made it in law enforcement in the West. This woman is a tough cookie. The first shovel into the midden that once was a working mineshaft was just as stinky and sloppy as the previous ones. This time, the DCI had employed fire and rescue to help secure the walls of the mine. About halfway through the second day of digging, a rusty barrel was revealed in all of that sludge. And when they finally pulled it out and opened it, they discovered pieces of antelope guts, not Ronnie Holtz. They kept digging on into the afternoon, but spirits were lowering as the sun got closer to the horizon. Then Weatherman yelled, Stop! Call the coroner! He'd found a metatarsal. That's part of the human foot. The firefighters came out of the hole and the homicide detective went down. Up came Humeri, Femora, and Pelvis, and by the time they had brought up all they could, there was an almost complete human skeleton with a nice little twenty-two caliber bullet hole in its skull. DNA confirmed this was Ronnie Holtz. One month later, Agent Trimble and two further DCI agents, plus two FBI agents, drove the two days to Missouri to see the Udens. Gerald is not home. Alice answers the door once again, this time fully clothed. The agents ask to search for a file folder. Alice says, sure, following along and blathering all the way. The search continues, and agents Trimble and Young ask Alice to accompany them to the Christian County Sheriff's Office once again, and this time she agrees to ride in the same car. Again, she blathers for the whole hour and a half drive. Once in a room at the Sheriff's Department, Trimble gets right down to business. She hands Alice a photo of a shirtless young man standing beside a chopper in what appeared to be the Vietnam War. Quoting from Francel's Gerald and Alice, Trimble asked, Who is Ron Holtz to you? Now the uneasy hands of the little old lady across from her trembled. She paused before answering. He was my husband for a while, Alice said. So did you guys develop a relationship there at the hospital? Alice answered directly, Yeah, sort of. It wasn't much of a relationship. She launched into a convoluted tale about how she'd already decided to quit her four-month-old nursing job at the Sheridan, Wyoming Veterans Psych Ward and moved back to Cheyenne when her manipulative patient, Ron Holtz, begged her to give him a ride to Denver. Eventually, she said, he convinced her to do more than drive. They soon slipped away from the hospital and married two weeks later in Colorado. She moved her mobile home to a Cheyenne trailer park, and their married life immediately turned sour. When Ronnie Holtz became verbally and physically abusive, threatening to kill two-year-old Erica, Alice claimed she kicked him out after less than three weeks of wedded bliss. She never saw him again. Alice admitted she'd been dishonest about Holtz, but only because she was embarrassed. A nurse hooking up with a mental patient in her ward was shameful. Although it had happened with Don Prunty, too. She came to her senses, though, when she tossed Ron Holtz out of her trailer a month or so after running away with him. Well, I'm glad we cleared the air, but there's some stuff we're still kind of unclear about, Trimble said as she reached again into her manila folder and pulled out another photo. She showed it to Alice. It was a full-color photo of an unwashed human skull. End quote. Here's Tina Trimble herself talking about that interview, with some clips from the actual interview. And this comes from an episode of Married with Secrets, Season 2, Episode 1. Agents bring in Alice Uden, now 74 years old, for questioning. 
We were able to get her down to the sheriff's office for an interview, and we basically told her, we're here to talk to you about some stuff from Wyoming. She was so cordial and was like, yeah, I'll, I'll spend my entire day talking to you about some things that I've already been asked about a million times. And I provide her with a photograph of Ron. You know that thing? No? No? Uh-uh. Never seen him? No? Okay. This is Ron Holtz. And she was like, is it? You know, that boy, I, I don't remember him looking like that. Trimble zeroes in on Holtz's murder. I show her a picture of the skull that was removed from the mine shaft. And I ask her, do you know who this is? And she's like, no. And I said, well, that's Ron Holtz. We know where he is because we have him now. So tell me what happened. What's wrong? And I know that you killed him. Yes. It just rolled right off her tongue. Yeah, I killed him. And I was stunned. And she explains, you know, that they had been in a fight and he had been drinking and had been violent with her in the past and had made threats towards Erica. Now resuming the tale. With proof that he'd been found, Alice unburdened her soul and came clean. When Ronnie came home one night after driving his cab, she didn't know the day, the date, or even the season, Erica was wailing. He hated crying babies. He always screamed about all the babies he'd killed in Nam and how he threatened to kill hers too. Angry and freaking out, he went to Erica's crib and Alice grabbed her twenty-two rifle from its hiding place in her bedroom closet. Just as Ronnie was lifting the bawling Erica, Alice put the barrel of her gun against the back of his head and pulled the trigger. Ronnie slumped into the crib, dead. It's also traumatic. I have a hard time remembering the details, Alice told the agents. I'm just so upset I got, got Erica into this mess. I was only trying to protect her. Alice continued. She grabbed an empty cardboard barrel where she stored her Christmas ornaments, and she crammed Ronnie's limp corpse into it. At over six feet tall and near 200 pounds, wouldn't his dead weight have overwhelmed the rather petite Alice, who stood 5'4 and weighed 140 tops? It wasn't very easy, she said, but I hadn't had enough adrenaline going that I made it. Alice hurriedly swaddled Erica in warm blankets and drove her to Commerce City, Colorado, where she dropped off the baby at her in-law's house. She asked them to babysit overnight because she and Ron had been fighting and she was planning to get rid of him. They understood because they had once kicked him out too. Then she drove back to her Cheyenne trailer park, where she backed up her Ford LTD to the trailer's back door and rolled the barrel into the remembered old abandoned mine hidden up in the trees, where they'd thrown dead animals and trash. It was the perfect place to hide this trash too. In the dark, she backed her LTD close enough that she could roll the barrel out of the trunk, down a little hill, and into the deep dark shaft. You know, where Flicka was thrown. Back at the trailer that night, or maybe early morning, there wasn't much mess to clean up, just a little spot of blood on the mattress. Wait, Trimble stopped her. Did he fall on the mattress? You said he fell in the crib. Alice's nervous fingers worried that ghostly spot again. No, he... I don't know how that blood got on the mattress, she stammered. I don't remember that part. Because he was standing up, right? Yeah, he kind of fell she tried unsuccessfully to explain, then abruptly changed the course of her narrative. I just grabbed Erica and got her out of there. I felt so scared he was still alive. Suddenly, Alice turned all pathos, although she never cried. 
she was the real victim. When she was a child, her mentally ill mother picked all her friends, so she had been surrounded by crappy people all her life. Her first three husbands had been unloving louts, abusive boozers, or dope fiends who didn't care about her like they should. Ronnie Holtz's death signaled the beginning of her new, free life, where she was in control, not them. Did you ever tell any of your kids about killing Ron? Trimble asked. Yes, all of them. Did you ever tell Gerald? Alice pondered the question. I think I mentioned it to him before we got married. I wish I hadn't. Was he concerned at all? Alice shook her head. If he was, he didn't tell me. Alice answered a few more of the agent's questions about Holtz. She'd been expecting to go to jail for killing Holtz since 1974. He was naked when she stuffed him into the barrel. She had no idea where that Cheyenne trailer park was. She bought her rifle after Don Prunty died and sold it to somebody in Cheyenne shortly after the shooting. She didn't know who. A few weeks after Ron Holtz's skeleton was found, some agents and firefighters returned to dig a little deeper for the murder weapon in case Alice had tossed it down there with her dead husband. They found nothing. VA records said that Ron Holtz was alive on Christmas Eve 1974. They must have been wrong, Alice said. They often are, you know. Alice never told her parents she married Holtz. Her insane mother, who'd once been in an asylum, would have started a physical brawl. Yes, Alice had confessed that particular sin, shooting a man in self-defense and dumping his body in a secret hole, to her children, but only as a cautionary tale about drugs. She assured Trimble and Young. Holtz had been an unrepentant junkie since Vietnam, she said. She merely wanted to scare her kids straight by vividly illustrating how drugs can be deadly, like any caring mother should. End quote. During the interview with Alice, S.A. Trimble called Gerald posing as a home health aide. She told him that Alice had been arrested. Gerald told her that he'd make his way back to Missouri as soon as he delivered his load. Gerald did just that. He met up with Erica first, who wanted to know what was going on, and he told her what he knew. When he got home, he cleaned out his rig and made sure his company would come to get the truck. He gave some things to his grandson. Erica had brought along her son, and then he sat down to wait. The DCI and FBI showed up together about six o'clock in the evening. Now, Gerald made one crucial mistake in his preparation for this visit. He assumed that Alice had been arrested for the murders of Virginia, Richard, and Regan. No one at the Christian County Sheriff's Office had gone public with the arrest, and Gerald didn't ask. So the agents came to talk to Gerald, just hoping he would incriminate himself somehow. And Daryl just starts confessing to everything. The agent's jaws drop. Gerald says it was all him. Alice didn't know nothing about nothing. Quote, I'm trying to juggle two women and it ain't flying, Gerald said. So finally it just went off. I said, I'm going to solve this problem. And I did. End quote. The following clip is from Killer Couples, Season 15, Episode 1. And it details Gerald's part in this whole debacle, including some of the confession that Gerald himself gave. I was paying her $150 a month. I'm trying to juggle two women, and it ain't flying. No. And so finally, it just went off. And I said, I've had it. I'm going to solve this problem. And so I did. Gerald tells police that on September 12, 1980, 
he lured Virginia to meet him under the premise of taking her sons, Richard and Reagan, dove hunting. Gerald says Virginia and the boys come to the medium a little before 2 o'clock on the 12th, and the boys are excited to see him, and he jumps in the passenger seat and directs Virginia to just drive up this dirt road to a point that he knows where they can safely shoot the gun. She drives to that place and they stop. The kids get out. Virginia was there. The gun was there. I was there. And I shot her right square in the back of the head and she went down. Richard was standing behind the station wagon and I whirled and I shot him in the back of the head. At this point, Reagan realized things were going south quickly and, and took off running. He tripped and he fell in the ditch. And I walked over <coughs> to him and I shot him once. And they were all three dead. That fast. It was 10 seconds. And they were gone. Quote, A day after Gerald's arrest, Alice had second thoughts about her story. In a second interview with agents Tina Trimble and Loy Young, she waived her Miranda rights and clarified her accounts of both her and Gerald's crimes. For one, she confessed. Ron Holtz hadn't been threatening baby Erica when Alice shot him. In truth, she'd waited until he fell asleep, then put the barrel of her twenty-two rifle against the back of his head and fired once. He died face down in bed, leaking blood all over the mattress. She killed him, she said, because she was terrified of him. She didn't say, however, why she was changing her story now, end quote. Gerald takes a plea deal, life in prison versus the death penalty he may have gotten without a deal. Part of that deal was to help locate the bodies of his former wife and children, so he goes on a field trip. In the recorded story confessing the murders, Gerald told investigators he had dumped their bodies in the ocean out in the Pacific Northwest. But his plea deal was predicated on the truth of his confession, so Gerald told the team what really happened to their bodies. Or, maybe. They were ultimately dumped in Fremont Lake, which is just northeast of Pinedale, Wyoming. Unfortunately, it was night, and therefore dark, when he dumped the bodies. He couldn't say where he'd stopped other than out in the middle of the lake. They didn't find the bodies. In fact, two comprehensive searches of the lake were conducted, Sonar indicated many, many human-made objects and stones that looked like barrels. Investigators suspect that Gerald had lied about where he put Virginia, Richard, and Regan. But somehow, Gerald's deal still remained in place, and he was given a life sentence. In all of this hubbub, Tina Trimble is mulling over a niggling detail. Quote, How many times is the average American person brushed by a single murder in a lifetime? Once? Maybe. Yet she knew, without a doubt, that Alice Uden was connected intimately to four. Suddenly, the premature death of another husband warranted a second look. S.A. Lonnie Tabeast first suspected it, and a doctor who examined Prunty's medical records had raised the specter of foul play. But finding Ronnie Holtz was a sure bet at the time. Now Trimble had Ronnie Holtz, and she had Alice's confession. She also had accounts from two of Alice's children that Alice had put something in her alcoholic husband's beverages to end his drinking. If Alice's confession to her children led to Ronnie Holtz's bones, 
it wasn't far-fetched to think they might reveal another killing, end quote. They dug Prunty up, but unfortunately, the embalming process and the groundwater that had rusted through Prunty's casket destroyed any possibility of determining poisoning or no. So now the suspicion remained, but knowing would never happen. Even being caught red-handed, inverted commas screaming from either side of that word, Alice was still changing her story about how and why she had killed Ron Holtz. There was no way she would confess to killing Don Prunty in any way, shape, or form. Alice does not take a deal. She votes to take her chances with a jury. My guess is she was going to bat her sad grandma eyes at the jury and push the self-defense claim. Her trial starts on May 1st, 2014. The why was the weakest part of the prosecution's case. Although the prosecution is not required to give a reason for the crime. Being able to prove or at least suggest a plausible motive can solidify a conviction with the jury. But Alice had changed her story too many times to be sure that any one version was correct. Forensics could only suggest she did it, not why. And the jury might be swayed by a story of an abused woman saving her toddler from imminent death. And look, whether you want to admit to yourself or not, We, human beings, are characterized by our compulsion to determine truth based on what we see. Again, I'm generalizing, but individual people do not always fit the mold. But what the jurors see is a slightly frail septuagenarian in a wheelchair with wispy hair, thanks to the chemo, using a hearing aid to hear the trial proceedings. Some things belied her innocuous appearance. One of the most influential was her relationship with her kids. Erica was only one of Alice's five children who wanted anything to do with her. Both Ted and Thea testified to Alice's admitting to killing her husband, Ron Holtz. Neither had seen or spoken to their mother in years. Neither Ted nor Thea could give a reason for Alice confessing to them at all. Both times the confession came as a non sequitur, and both times the teenage recipient was too confounded to ask her questions. Both Thea and Ted told the court they hadn't had any dealings with their mother in years. Ted punctuated his testimony by forcefully telling his mother that he hated her. Alice ended up with a conviction for second-degree murder and 20 years in prison. This was solely for the murder of Ron Holtz. No mention was made in the trial or at the sentencing of the suspicious death of her second husband, Don Prunty, or her connection to the deaths of Virginia, Richard, and Regan. After being in prison for a few months, it was obvious she would need the services of assisted living or a nursing home, so she was moved to what is essentially a prison care home. This was, coincidentally, in the same prison walls as the male facility Gerald was calling his home. No matter their proximity, they were only allowed to write letters to one another. No calls, no meetings, not even an accidental viewing from across the prison yard. Alice Uden died at age 80, with 15 years left on her sentence. Gerald wrote two letters to Ron Francel, one dated before Alice's death and one just after, in which he claimed that Alice murdered Virginia and the boys. He was only covering for her, and Gerald used this revelation to file an appeal of his conviction. However, his appeal was denied in 2020 essentially because there was no procedural details incorrectly conducted during his confession and sentencing. There are puzzles that still have no answer, and before I end this story, I'm going to point a few out. 
the cadaver dog signaling on the pig pen when the Uden's Wyoming property was searched. I'm sure search dogs make mistakes. However, it is my experience that they are right many, many, many more times than they are wrong. Was there a body taken care of in this pigsty? Is there another person that the Udens had killed? Or was it Virginia Richard and Regan who were disposed of in this manner? The bodies still have yet to be found. It seems very odd that the killing stopped after Virginia and the boys. Gerald had no history of killing people until Alice came into the picture and then, supposedly, they were his first and last victims. Alice, on the other hand, had killed her third husband and there is suggestive evidence that she was at least trying to kill her second. So, one, was Alice initially planning on killing Gerald too? She warmed her way into the life of husband two and three using the Florence Nightingale approach. This was not her method of meeting Gerald, so maybe she had no intent to ever kill him. Maybe. And two, their last confirmed kill was in 1980. They were picked up in 2013. 33 years of not killing seems a bit suspect. It's completely possible, but it wouldn't surprise me in the least if there are more victims somewhere. They did, after all, own a trucking company, and it's easy enough to dispose of the bodies along the route. There are no answers to these questions, and there may never be. If Gerald has kept the letters passed between him and Alice during the prison sentences, we may find some of the answers upon his death. That is the tale of the Udens, and if you've liked the story, give it a review and rate the podcast. Keep your hate to yourself. If you feel the need to contact me for comments or suggestions, you can find me at Despecta on most of the things or a variant of that. I leave you with the ink spots, and I will have another tale for you next time on It's All Relative. It's all over but the crying, and I can't get.